powered through the Alaska Airline Studios. This is Bump and Stacy on Seattle Sports. Streaming through the Seattle Sports app. Now, here are your hosts, Michael Bumpus and Stacy Ross. Here we go now. Pitchers and catchers report today. So what are our expectations for the Mariners in 2024? That's how Michael Bumpus and I started our show today. And it's the conversation we're going to start with Mariners broadcaster Aaron Goldsmith. He joins us on the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline. Aaron, how's it golden? going? Golden. <laughs> <laughs> Stacy, Bump, man, it's good to talk with you guys again. Let's get it going here, huh? I know. Um, so I wanted to start uh, with the way that we started our show. We just talked about expectations, and there's no better time to talk about it. Like, no one's been hurt. You know what I mean? Like, no one needs rehab. No one needs anything. The sky's the limit, so you kind of look at the ceiling of your team. What do you see as the ceiling for the Mariners with what they've got now going into spring training? I think as long as Julio Rodriguez is a member of your organization, which of course he will be for a long time, you, you have to go into every year with the expectation of at the worst being a wild card team. In other words, you have to go into every year with the expectation of making the playoffs. And I can guarantee you that Justin and Jerry felt the weight and the responsibility of building a team, uh, reconstructing a team around Julio in particular to guarantee that that happens because you just simply cannot waste whether it's early years, middle years, or late years of someone like Julio. So with that in mind, I, I think this is a team that uh, on paper to me looks does look better than last year's team, which we know how close they were, and they were nearly a 91 team. So I think right back in that conversation is where the Mariners, at least as of right now, as you mentioned, uh, project to be. Hey, Aaron, um, no denying the talent that's in this rotation. I'm hearing um, Bryce Miller added a splitter to his repertoire. Is there something you want to see from Wu, something that was missing, or you feel that could uh, help his game? I think the biggest storyline for Wu in particular and for Bryce Miller is what will they do to combat left-handed hitters. As we watched the back half of the season play out last year, both of those young men had so many impressive moments, obviously, and the way that they just took to the big league mound was uh, even from a Mariners curve, right? We've seen so many guys come up and hit right away or pitch right away. Uh, but for them to do what they did was incredibly impressive. However, I can't remember the last time I've seen managers flip their lineup so abruptly based on the opposing starting pitcher than when those guys were on the mound. And it feels like Wu may be slightly more than Bryce Miller. They just did not have an effective weapon for left-handed hitters. There's a game in San Francisco that stands out in particular. It's a homecoming for Wu. He's, of course, from the Bay Area. And Gabe Kapler uh, threw six lefties in there. That might have been the most that we saw. The Nationals did something similar to Wu as well. But it seemed like there was a minimum, a minimum of four, and typically somewhere from five to six left-handed hitters against Wu. And when you look at his splits, how much he, he truly became, guys. This is, I'm, not, I'm not blowing smoke here. He became one of the best right-on-right -right starting pitchers in the American League last year. I mean, his stuff against righties was that knockout. And yet, he got knocked around that much facing lefties uh, to the other end of the spectrum. So when you take that into consideration, how few a number of right-handed hitters he was facing and how many more left-handed hitters he was facing with kind of no armor 
he didn't have a, a go-to weapon for him, them that was effective for them both, and in this case, Wu in particular, to have such great success overall to their rookie seasons. I, I tip my cap, and it just really goes to show you how the quality of pitchers that those guys are. And yes, if each of them can come up with something, and for Bryce, it, hopefully it's the splitter, uh, Wu's been a little more secretive, at least from what I've been able to gather, uh, going into spring training to combat left-handed hitting. Uh, who knows what the next step could be for each one of those guys. Moving from the rotation to the lineup, what do you make of the additions to offense in particular? Well, the Mariners have answered two real black holes, right, that have been a problem, uh, whether it be for the last year or for a number of years. Uh, really, ever since Robinson Cano, you know, the Mariners have had a, a real revolving door at second base. So to get Polanco, and not just what he brings as a second baseman, but just this incredible fit that he gives the Mariners and the 26-man roster, the way it's constructed, infield versatility, a switch hitter, which was just so critical. Plus, when you look at the overall makeup of the guy, the total package, a veteran guy who's been around, he's won hardware, he's been on playoff teams, and from all accounts and what the Mariners have been able to research and dig into, uh, just a really good clubhouse guy. Uh, you know, Part of the reconnaissance on Polanco, he shares the same representation that Julio has. So that was a, a pretty good start. And he, Polanco is part of this just like, incredible workout group in Florida that Julio is a part of that has uh, guys like Adolis Garcia and Jordan Alvarez. It's like this mini all-star team uh, and, and Polanco is a part of that. So that was some, some good person personal scouting report on, on the Mariners new second baseman. And then the other position that's been, you know, last year had so many people pulling their hair out is the DH and the Mariners are clearly taking a, a shift in philosophy with that position. They recognize the need to get more offensive production there. So we will not see the revolving door that we have seen in past years at that position. And it will be Mitch Garvers. And they will try everything they can to keep him healthy. Because when he is healthy and is in the lineup, he's a difference maker. I mean, he, he hits for some real damage. He can pull the ball. He can pull the ball in the air. He hits home runs. He hits doubles. He plugs the gap. And he knows, he knows what makes him a good hitter. We've talked to him already on the Hot Stove Show. He has a very good self-scout awareness. So he knows what his role will be. And hopefully he can uh, stay upright, uh, be somewhere in that range of over 100 games, which has been a, a hard hurdle for him to get over in his career at times. Um, but if you can get both those guys in there on a regular basis, it's going to make, without question, a huge difference. Two veterans who have both been in playoff teams. Garver won the World Series last year and, and both fill major needs for the club. Goldie, you got one of the best voices in the game, but now I need you to be a psychiatrist, okay? I'm, uh, I'm, lis I'm listening to Jared Kelnick and how he talks about Seattle and just the tone in his voice, um, the words that he's using. And I'm saying he's a lot more comfortable in Atlanta. He made that clear. What do you think the disconnect was here when it comes to relationships with Jared Kelnick and the Mariners? You know, I'd say, for one thing, I've, I've heard some of what you're talking about, Bump. Uh, I think it's pretty easy to be comfortable anywhere before it hits the fan, right? Like, right. you feel really comfortable in your new job before you start your new job, and all of a sudden you face some type of adversity, or you meet your coworkers and things get stressful, and you're pulling double shifts and whatever. And 
I, I hope nothing but the best for Jared. Uh, I never had a bad interaction with Jared Kelnick, and whenever I wanted to talk with him, he made himself available. He gave good answers. Uh, he obviously put himself in very vulnerable situations, right? I can't remember the last time I've seen a guy cry in front of the media uh, like Jared Kelnick did. He also did a number of regrettable things. I think he would be the first tone up to that. Uh, I think it, it got to a point for Jared, and I don't, I don't know if I can exactly pinpoint a moment, how or why. I'm not behind every closed door. But it did start to feel like it was getting to a point where it just might not work for Jared Kelnick in Seattle. And now we're going to know, right? Like, if he takes off in Atlanta, then we can all say, all right, the Mariners didn't have it wrong on Kelnick. The Mets didn't have it wrong on Kelnick. The industry did not have it wrong on Kelnick. For whatever reason, it just didn't work. Some of that might be internal for Jared. Some of it might be external. We know he's kind of fought through a lot of mental demons, right? He hired a mental skills coach uh, two years ago when he was down in Tacoma trying to get right. It seemed like it got right. And then he lost his cool. So he's still fighting through that a little bit. If he can't get it done in that ballpark, in that lineup, I don't think it can get done, right? Like he's, he's set up for the greatest level of success and the, the Braves have made a very sizable financial commitment based on the salaries they took on to get Jared Kelnick. Um, the talent appears to be there. We have never seen it for a, a, a long enough stretch. But I, I, if people, what I, I what I, guys, I really hope, I, I hope he has a great career in Atlanta. But what I, I hope along with that is I hope people in Seattle, if that does happen, they don't say, oh, well, the Mariners. Another guy leaves Seattle and goes and has a great career. You know what? Sometimes it just takes a different place, right, Bump? Like, I think every athlete can speak to that to some level in their career. And I don't think that means that it was a Mariner's fault or a Mariner's problem. Like, people change. And when people change, they become more adaptable. They become better. They are willing to receive new information that maybe a year ago, three years ago, they weren't. So all these things can be true at once. I hope he has a great year. He's in a great ballpark to hit in a great lineup, and it very well can happen. Jared Kelnick has a lot to learn from his experience in Seattle, of course. And you're right, like saying that, oh, it's a Seattle problem if he succeeds does simplify it. But all of that being said, and this doesn't just have to do with Jared Kelnick, what do you really hope, Aaron, that the Mariners learned from 2023? Boy, that's a good question. Um, what I hope the Mariners learn from 2023? Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of different directions you could go there, right? Like ultimately they, they won a good number of games. They came a game short of making the playoffs. Mm -hmm. I think my biggest takeaway or one of them from last year, I'll speak for myself is that the games in April and the games in May count just like the games in August and the games in September. And the Mariners have had a struggle getting out of the gates hot in recent years. I don't think that they're, at least to my knowledge, uh, there isn't something I can point to and say, this is why, you know, there's so many unexplainable things in baseball and I mean, look at the Rays. the Rays It got off to a hotter start than any team in the history of baseball last year. And then they fizzled in a major way and they did not win a playoff game. They won as many playoff games as the Mariners did, but they got, they were hot to begin. Um, but so all that to say, just cause you get off to a hot start doesn't mean, that's how it's going to finish. We all know how long the season is. But it does seem to me like one of the real keys for this year is can the Mariners come out 
and have a winning month of April, a winning month of April and the few days before in March, uh, because they all count the same. And the Mariners needed that one extra win at some point in the 162 to get them over the hump, and they couldn't get it. Aaron, I think uh, Julio would echo what you just said because um, he was quoted saying he felt he had a bad 2023. When it's all said and done, you look at his numbers, I think he had a pretty good year. But uh, it's because of what you just mentioned, right? It's about being consistent throughout the season. Uh, what did you make of Julio's season last year? Do you think he's being too hard on himself or do you think he's being real? I think he sounds like what's something that one of the greats would say, right? Like that's there's there are – what guys there's been something like 35,000 people men to ever play major league baseball. Okay. Let's cut half of that for for hitters. Let's just call it like, let's just say 15,000 guys have swung a bat on a big league field. You know how many of those 15,000 would give to have a season like Julio has last year at, at the age of 22. I mean, it's amazing, but he's built different physically, mentally. We know that. And Yes, if you look at the, the full course of the season, he had uh, a, a non-Otani MVP caliber year, right, what he was able to put together. he was. There have barely been 40 players in the history of baseball to have a 30-30 season, and he did it, and he's 22 years old. Uh, I expect him to take another step forward this year because he is Julio Rodriguez. I expect him – to cut down on the swing and miss because he is capable of cutting down on swinging and missing. Uh, I still think he had a really great year last year. The problem is, and this is true for almost every team that has a megawatt superstar like Julio is you kind of need Julio to be Julio on a lot of nights to win, right? Like, there aren't many teams that have the luxury of the Atlanta Braves where if Ronald Acuna Jr. goes through a week-long slump or a two-week-long spell that, you know, it's okay because Matt Olson's going to drive in 120 and swat almost 50 bombs. Or Austin Riley is going to hit 45 home runs. And, you know, he'll be a top-five MVP finish. Or Sean Murphy, don't worry, he'll pick you up because he's got 35 in his back pocket, right? And it goes on and on and on for the Braves. And you can say the same about the Dodgers. And they're just laundry list of stars. Like those are the outlier teams. Most of these teams, like they have, they don't even have a Julio. And if they have something close to it, that's it. You know, like if Jose Ramirez goes through a two week spell for the guardians, guardians are going to have a tough two weeks. And I think the Mariners have made moves offensively to alleviate some of that pressure, right? We've already said some of the names. There are others as well, like Mitch Hanniger to alleviate some of that pressure on Julio. But my, my guess would be, in particular, last year with the, how slow the offense started for months, that it was like Julio knew. Like he knows I gotta, I gotta be Julio Rodriguez every night, every night. Right. Which in this game, I cannot imagine how hard that is. Hopefully, with a year of maturity, a year of his skill sets improving even more so, and a better surrounding core offensively. Hopefully, some of that pressure kind of goes away for him this year. He is Mariners broadcaster Aaron Goldsmith, kind enough to join us at a spring training on the Emerald Queen Casino Sportsbook Hotline. Thanks, Goldie. Thanks, Goldie. You got it, guys. Great talking with you. You too.
The 89th Sports Star of the Year Awards are coming up February 15th. That is tomorrow. KJ Wright is this year's host, and Seattle Sports will be there as well to celebrate the biggest sports stories and athletes of 2023. Find tickets and info at seattlesports.com slash events. Breaking news in the NFL is leading off headline rewrites, so let's get to it. Headline rewrites. We must make headlines. The real story behind the headlines in today's news with Bob and Stacy. From San Francisco, the 49ers have fired defensive coordinator Steve Wilkes just days after the Super Bowl. What's the real headline? Steve Wilkes, not the one who missed an extra point or chose to receive the overtime kickoff. I'm trying to figure this out. I'm just looking at the numbers and I go, all right, this year they were eighth overall. Uh, defense 14th against the pass, third against the run, third when it comes to points allowed. Mm-hmm. Last year, first overall, 20 versus pass, third against the run, first when it comes to points allowed. A look at who they lost this year. You lost Hufunga, Cleveland Farrell in the playoffs. Greenlaw uh, obviously got hurt at oh, a spook or a, a fluke type of deal. And then I go to the playoffs. I go, maybe it was the playoff performance that got him fired. He was third overall when it comes to uh, their offense, second against the pass, third against the run, second in points allowed. And then I go back to situational football. I go, was it the third and short call that he, he blitzed everybody and allowed them to get the first down? Was it that they didn't handle the, the zip return motion to um, to uh, Hardman that won the game? What was it? Because I'm looking at the numbers. I'm looking at the performance, the things they overcame with losing players, and it don't make sense to me. This smells like we got to fire somebody because Shanahan wasn't able to win the big game. I'll throw some numbers your way, and I agree with you. It feels like Steve Wilkes is a scapegoat, and it's Steve, it feels like Steve Wilkes is a perfectly serviceable defensive coordinator who's been a great coach for them, and they are just looking for some kind of answer. However, during the regular season, Steve Wilkes' defense held teams to 17.5 points per game. That was among the best in football. In the playoffs, it was 25.7 points per game. Granted, there's three games that you're playing, right? If you have another full season maybe that changes but between the Packers Lions and Chiefs 25.7 points allowed per game still also second best in the playoffs still second best I'm, I'm just saying it's 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 the difference that maybe the 49ers are seeing I'm not advocating for it I don't think Steve Wilkes should have been fired I think it's so obviously a scapegoat situation but if you're looking around going well whose fault is it I'm not gonna fire myself I'm not gonna fire my players uh, I'm not going to fire my offensive linemen that are under contract that I still need for next season. You're going to look at a defense that, I, I don't know, held Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs to 19 points in regulation as though that was something really pathetic. I have no idea. This is wild. He didn't deserve to be fired. It must no, be didn't. personal or they're trying to take the attention off of Kyle Shanahan. It's taking the attention away from everyone else. It's taking the attention away. From- Execution was a problem in the Super Bowl. A few decisions were a problem in the Super, Super Bowl and sloppy turnovers. If you want to point to Steve Wilkes defense, I guess you can point to the points per game, but guess what? They still won all of those games. You intercepted Patrick Mahomes. Exactly. You jumped on a fumble. Your offense did not capitalize on the turnovers that you created. Yes. What is going on? Kyle Shanahan's not firing himself is what's going on, nor should he, right? He's a phenomenal head coach and he's a phenomenal play caller, but this is an organization that demands excellence and demanding excellence means calling for heads to roll sometimes. And unfortunately for Steve Wilkes, he's going to be the scapegoat here. Goodness gracious. That's I crazy. know. I, I agree. I think it's the wrong move. And it also makes you look at like everything that other teams have put up with. Like Seattle for real. Imagine Seattle finishing, let's say fifth in overall defense and firing their defensive coordinator because it wasn't enough. Like th- truly, I can't fathom that world. Seattle's been rolling with defensive coordinators overseeing units that finished 30th. 
They were better in so many areas this year. I don't it, understand. That's crazy. Yeah. Headline rewrites. Headline number two, the Pac-12 is removing, actually the Pac-2 is removing George Klyovkov as the conference's commissioner. What's the real headline? Why? What happened? <laughs> We're still trying to figure that out. What do you mean? You didn't save the day. Yeah. Like you promised. Yeah, what? Uh, you promised you were going to be our knight in shining armor, and you were not that. You were uh, painted as a guy from Las Vegas who's going to who understands marketability and how to sell this uh, this conference and get a better TV deal. What happened was you sent somebody to evaluate this conference and said, uh, they're worth about $50 million per school for the, the TV rights deal, when really you're around $30 million. And ESPN was willing to give you that $30 million. You say, no, nah, we're good. We'll find a better deal. And you wait and you wait and you wait. And teams start to leave because you're waiting. You don't find a better deal. Who knows what George was doing behind the scenes, but it clearly wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Larry is responsible for this, mm-hmm. but George, you played a role in this thing. You watched this conference die, and you lied to people saying, everything's under control. We got this handled. Headline rewrites. Headline number three, the Kraken bounced back last night with a 2-1 shootout win over the New York Islanders. What's the real headline? Just as we predicted in Hype Train yesterday, that's me giving Hype Train credit as a magical source of predictions. It's happened before. Um, It uh, was a first goal for Matty Benier since January 9th. Obviously the first win for the Kraken since early January. Uh, They had been on a three-game losing streak and finally got that win on a second consecutive game. You don't usually have back-to-back games. This one against the Islanders, and it's just in time. Hey, go get it. Get that money. Get those games. We still in it. Come on, Kraken. Puck ice. You're listening to Bump (laughs) and Stacey on Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports app. The mic'd up audio of the overtime coin toss is finally out, and none of the Chiefs could believe what happened. That's next. Bumpin' Stacy, Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. On Seattle Sports. Here are your hosts, Michael Bumpus and Stacy Ross. Taking a look around the NFL, and we are going to start by looking back at Super Bowl 58. We got mic'd up sound finally to come from this. Now, there's lots of good stuff, but the one most people are talking about is the mic'd up moment from the coin toss. Take a listen. You want the toss? Yeah. Which way you want to kick it? They call it. They call it, right? Well, they've got a coin flip. Yeah, they call a coin flip. So they're a coin flip, right? Which way do you want to kick it? We want the ball, Fred. San Francisco, you are still the visitors. What is your call? Tails again. He called tails again. It is tails. Overseed. You want the ball? Which way do you want to kick? We're going to kick that way. San Francisco, we see first and overtime. Good luck, gentlemen. They want it. They want the ball. They wanted it. Hey, they wanted it. They wanted it, baby. We want them to have the ball. They want it, they can have it. Hey, even if we score a touchdown, they still get the ball. I didn't know that. If we won the toss, we're going to kick off, too. We got what we wanted. Okay, so what you hear is obviously the initial coin flip. Then you hear Patrick Mahomes going and telling people they they want it. This is playing into exactly our plans because the Chiefs at this point have discussed for a long time being able to go for a touchdown and then go for two to win the game. Um, And then you hear the 49ers players figuring out like, wait, so they get it even if we score a touchdown. 
sounds like one side was completely prepared for this moment. Yeah. And the other side is trying to figure it out. These are the things you have to do throughout the season, throughout the week, to make sure that you cover as many scenarios as possible. There's nothing like guys getting in situations and knowing what the coach is going to do in that in that situation. The Chiefs were prepared. The uh, Niners weren't. I bet they're going to say now the Niners are going to be like, well, Wilkes told us that, you know, we should – we should, we should get the ball. That's why we fired him. Oh, Everything God. has got to point towards Wilkes now. It feels so dirty. Like, it really does. So I was looking at uh, a couple people going, oh, well, you know, Steve Wilkes, um, you know, like he had some issues. If you guys remember, um, as defensive coordinator, the defense was kind of struggling during that three-game losing streak the 49ers had. Brock Purdy turning the ball over was another part of that struggle, by the way. But Steve Wilkes was asked by Kyle Shanahan to come down from the coach's booth to the sideline and so we were all wondering like "Ooh, is there like some kind of issue with the defense what's going on and then they were fine and then his defense was phenomenal and then they finished the season as the number one seed in the nfc and yes they did struggle as a team against the packers lions and chiefs steve wilkes defense was not the sole part of that these were not shootout losses to these teams no they weren't shootouts and if, if there's anything i can i can say about the failures of the niners in the playoffs it would be their inability to stop the run before this game. Now, during this game, I believe they held them to about 80 yards on the ground. So maybe they saw the 136 on the ground by uh, Green Bay and the 140-something against Detroit and said, uh, that's not what we're about. So, uh, yeah, man, everything uh, points to Wilkes, so that's what they're going to do. Well, and Stacy and Bump, you missed the 49ers call to fire Wilkes big time. It wasn't just the Super Bowl. He was terrible throughout the playoffs, giving up huge chunk plays repeatedly, among other things. Now, the 49ers defense did struggle with a few things. For instance, they struggled against the run, particularly during the regular season, but that showed up again in the playoffs. Uh, and that especially showed up during the last, like, five games where they gave up over 100 yards on the ground in, like, four of those. However... They were facing the Packers, who were a pretty decent scoring offense. They were facing the Lions, who were one of the top scoring offenses. And they were facing Patrick Mahomes. And by the way, they still held him and the Chiefs to 19 points in regulation and pretty much scoreless in the first half. Yeah. Um, doesn't cause for someone to be fired, in my opinion. It but doesn't. maybe it's philosophy. Maybe it's the situations that we talk about, um, decision-making and clutch moments. Um, again, we, we joke that Wilkes is a scapegoat. I think he partly is, but I also think that there had to be something as far as preparation and execution that the organization didn't like. Yeah, if you want to point to, hey, here's where the 49ers defense struggled at times, that's not wrong. It was not a perfect defense. It was not the best 49ers defense we've ever seen. It was not as good as their 2019 unit. Uh, they don't quite have those same players, though. Um, and also, they face some really good offenses. I, Again, you can find flaws with any unit. If the Lions fired their defensive coordinator, you would point to that second half against the 49ers. Or if they fired Ben Johnson, you'd go, oh, well, here's why. You can't ignore all the other good stuff. No, you can't. But um, in this situation, it, it's not a right fit. So here yeah. comes your fourth coordinator in the last, what, five years, I think. The Athletic polled anonymous NFL executives and coaches about the head coaching hires made around the NFL, filling those eight spots. And Mike McDonald finished with the third highest rating behind Jim Harbaugh, number one for the Chargers, and Raheem Morris, who was hired for the Falcons. All this is dumb to me, Stacey. What do you mean? This means nothing. I'm going to rank 
you know, where guys win and, and who did what. This is like preseason rankings for college football. It means nothing. Or it means everything. Let them play three, four, or five games before you rank them. Let these dudes go out there and do their job before we rank them. I get it. It's offseason talk and it gives yeah. us something to talk about. But in reality, that means absolutely nothing. Jim Harbaugh received the most first place votes. Raheem Morris, then Mike McDonald. Receiving no first place votes and then following in order was Brian Can- Callahan for the Titans. Dan Quinn for the Commanders, Gerard Mayo for the Patriots, and not especially popular was Dave Canales for the Panthers and Antonio Pierce, interim head coach, now full-time head coach for the Raiders. Dang. I feel like that's more the results of those teams. That's yeah. the thing. Is like uh-huh. Uh-huh. When you look at it in context, like if this isn't a ranking of like how good people think these coaches are. Look at it in context. Jim Harbaugh's been there before. He's been a head coach. He's been to a Super Bowl. He's won a national championship. Now he's taking over a Chargers team with Justin Herbert, the only one of these teams with a young uh, quarterback who's fantastic. Yeah, that's the probably the best situation if you disregard the division they are in and who they have to compete against twice a year. Um, Raheem Morris, we've heard nothing but great things about him. He failed with the Bucks in, what, 2010 through 12 or something like that. Mm-hmm. But he's been around the block a few times, and he's learning, and he's growing. So, I mean, I get it. I'm going to make fun of it because, in reality, it means absolutely nothing. Yeah. But when you break it down, uh, experience, position, the personnel, it makes sense. <laughs> Another listener go, yeah, Steve Wilkes sucks so badly, he helped get them to a Super Bowl. That's how badly he sucks. <laughs> Well, speaking of defensive coordinators, congratulations to Steve Spagnuolo. The Chiefs signed their defensive coordinator to a contract extension, as they should. He's been D coordinator on four different Super Bowl teams now, the 2007 Giants, as well as the Chiefs in 2020, 2023, and, of course, this past season. Most Super Bowls from a defensive coordinator, Spagnuolo. Good for you. Lock them in. Sign them. And again, this is a an example of a coach, right? If, if Steve wanted to be a head coach, right, they could have put his name out there and he probably would have gotten a couple of interviews. But he's looking at this situation the same way Andy Reid is and saying, why would I go anywhere? Why would I retire right now? You got Patrick Mahomes. You have a dynasty right there in front of you. You're going for three next mm-hmm. year. Good for uh, for Spagnolo. Chris Jones is set to become a free agent this offseason, but apparently he let his uh, destination be known. I ain't going nowhere, baby, he said at the Chiefs Super Bowl parade today. I will be here next year, the year after, and the year after. Chris Jones probably drinking, probably having a good time. Somewhere his agent is going, no! No, don't throw this leverage away. I actually think that the best place for Chris Jones is in Kansas City. He's such a good fit for that defense. They're the best team in football. If you're not on the Baltimore Ravens, if you're not with the 49ers, you're looking at the Chiefs as your best chance to get to a Super Bowl. But if you're his agent, you want to get the most leverage possible by making his team think you could go somewhere else. Yeah, it's um, it's crazy the way we talk about the Kansas City Chiefs now. Obviously, Mahomes is going to be the highlight, but we talk about this defense, yeah. defensive coordinator, Chris Jones, and everybody else over there. But I feel Chris Jones. I've said plenty of things I didn't mean when I was drunk, and that's what he means right now. You're messing up the leverage that you have, Chris Jones. Now, we all say plenty of things we don't mean when we're drunk, and maybe we uh, have uh, been drunk quite often as Seahawks fans. The NFL's drunkest (laughs) fan bases based on blood alcohol content readings is out. And congratulations, Seahawks. We did it. We're top 10. Ahead of us are the Titans, the number one drunkest fan base, Colts, Saints, Packers, Raiders, Bucks, and then the Seahawks. Rounding out the top 10 are the Broncos and Panthers. You know, I thought that um, the Chiefs would be in the mix here, but they're second to last. 
too responsible over there. But maybe that's why they have a dynasty because that whole organization They're is just focused. responsibility. They're We're locked ball in right now. Okay. Uh, but uh, big up Seahawks. And I, I, I would agree. I, uh, at halftime of the uh, the games over here at Lumen, after halftime, we do the halftime show. And mm-hmm. I usually take a lap mm-hmm. around the stadium, kind of feel what's going on. You go to those 300 levels. Let me tell you it's what. It's going down. You got to drink to stay warm. Now, <laughs> this is why I don't fully believe this, though. I'm like, I don't know how many people. Um, it, it's from over 28,000 tests. So, yeah, that's a lot of tests. But, like. Eh, I'm not buying it fully. The Jets are, uh, they don't have any information. They would, there's no way they'd be in last place, but technically they are. Um, the uh, the Bears are on here. I don't buy that at all, um, among the fewest. Bills Mafia. Bills Mafia among the fewest. I don't believe you. I do not believe you. Eagles, you're telling me the Eagles, Bills, and Bears are in the bottom third of drunkest fan bases? That's simply not true. <laughs> no, That's I don't believe simply you not true. Frog. I don't believe you at all. So anyways, we're number seven. We did it. Very proud of all of us. The latest from KJ Wright coming your way next. Bumpin' Stacy, Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. On Seattle Sports. Here are your hosts, Michael Bumpus and Stacy Rost. Speaking of drunk, Travis Kelsey smashed at the Super Bowl parade right now, trying to sing Friends in Low Places. It's from earlier. He he (laughs) slammered. My guy is gone. The latest from KJ Ryan. He was on with Brock and Salk this morning, and he had plenty to react to. Obviously, he hadn't talked about the JSN comments. Uh, He hadn't heard uh, the latest from Mike McDonald, new Seahawks head coach, uh, was asked whether he he thinks Geno's going to be the starting quarterback in week one. Obviously asked if he would trade DK, a controversial article from Mike Salk. So let's get to it all um we'll start with jsn's comments if uh you guys remember jsn was asked um by a bears podcast uh whether or not or what he thought about shane waldron as uh, oc because shane waldron now oc for the bears had kind of a weird answer where he was very uncomfortable kind of being like is this live and then and then he did and then at the end he said nice things, but it just did not feel like mm-hmm. a wholehearted mm-hmm. endorsement. This is what KJ Wright had to say. I saw the the two viral clips that went down. I said, young young man, don't do that. <laughs> that when you get asked that type of question, that is you just have to lie, lie, lie. <laughs> you, you gotta lie. Oh, Sh- Shane is awesome. He, he he was wonderful, you know. You guys are gonna he, love him. <laughs> so that was um that was a, a rookie mistake that he made, but we can say that he was thoroughly honest. Yeah. Lie. Yeah, you got to lie. That would be my advice. Because you never know when those paths are going to cross again, right? I would love for Jason to be here for 15 years and retire as Seahawk and do all that good stuff. thing about Shane Waldron is this isn't going to be his last stop in the NFL. It's the nature of being a coach. So you never know when those paths are going to cross. And then if you're not willing to stick up for that guy, coaches might be like, man, why would you stick up for us? Mm -hmm. But I honestly think that there's there's some – there's something pure about his answer. Oh, it's honest. Because I think it's he, how he felt. Yeah, he was he was in the moment and he was trying to calculate what was going down, how he should answer it, and that hesitancy is what just uh 
could rub Shane Walge in the wrong way. I, I think Jason is a good dude. I, I, I think that um, he was probably on the verge of answering completely uh, honest and thought about it and said, you know what, actually, let me uh, let me go ahead and cover this up. But the damage had already been done. Yeah. Honest mistake by a young dude. I know that young people especially really value authenticity and Gen Z in general just doesn't feel the same. Like media training is quite the same as yeah. do millennials, as do quite obviously older people too. Um but the NFL's different. It's, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's a refreshing honesty that we all value and an authenticity we value from, like, TikTok stars or uh, celebrities or whatever. The NFL is old school. It's still trailing behind. There's still, like, a rule, still a code that you need to follow. And Read the script. That You know what I mean? You know what to say there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's get to um, some of what he had to hear from Mike McDonald. I'll go to this one talking about hearing uh, Mike McDonald talk about establishing an identity. So he's getting me juiced up talking this talk that he's talking. <laughs> he's, he's getting me juiced up. I know what you're talking, coach. This is like your bread and butter. This is your meat and potatoes. This is when you come in there day one and you show something on that drawing board this is who the heck we are. Yeah. We are not wavering from this. We are not moving from this. When you put on this Seahawks jersey, this is what you are going to stand for. When you go out there on OTAs, practice one, this is the first defensive play that we're going to call. This, this is what he's talking about when we're talking about core. And then you talk about building off of that, branching off of that. When you have your core, now we're going to add this. Now we're going to add that. Now we're going to sprinkle a little salt and pepper on this to really make this steak taste good. So that's what he's saying, and this is what I'm really excited about with McDonald. I'm going to actually combine this with another cut bump. Uh, he was then asked, well, what was the core identity supposed to look like under Clint Hurt? What was it? It is supposed to be aggressive. That was the, the word. Yep. That was the word. When I, I went in a few production meetings, when I was doing myself. Um, with the media, that was the word. Aggressive, aggressive, aggressive. Mm -hmm. Game one of the preseason, the first play he called was a slasher, a blitz right off the edge. So that's what it was supposed to be. And it... It was not. It wasn't. It, it wasn't. wasn't. It, it didn't live mm -hmm. up yeah. to... Why do you think it didn't? Because that identity is great. I think 99% of Hawks fans, of football fans, Bump, would hear, we want to be an aggressive defense and be like, yeah, I'm here for it. It wasn't. No, because... You can say a lot prior to being in the battle on that football field when you're making decisions. You get into that situation, you might be like, oh, I don't trust that these guys are going to be able to execute this. Or they didn't show me enough in practice for me to feel comfortable making this call. Or you get in a fight and you're like, all right, let's just survive. Let's just survive. <laughs> Keep our head above and, water. And see, exactly. It gets real, man. I, I'm telling people, there's a lot of couch coaches and managers out there. Ain't nothing like having to make decisions in 25 to 30 seconds that affects the outcome of the game. You're supposed to put your guys in position. So when there's doubt or when you don't see enough from your team, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to cover all scenarios, right? There could be your team didn't practice well. They're not executing um, your, your scheme or you're not teaching it. Your staff isn't teaching it well enough to where they get it, right? Either way you slice it, you get into that moment and there's something that says, I don't trust that this is going to work. So then you keep it real basic and, and call what you think is safe. So in those moments, uh, you have to go with your gut, your preparation, and what your guys are doing. 
and uh, there was a disconnect somewhere. A controversial article from Mike Salk where he said uh, that he'd be willing to consider a trade for DK. Now, he was talking about the Seahawks just kind of like maybe investing a lot of resources in some of the wrong things. Mm-hmm. For him, the focus needed to be on the in the trenches rather than on skill position players. And he thought, God, if you can get a first rounder, if you can get whatever. So he asked KJ Wright what KJ thought about that idea of trading DK. I would. Oh, absolutely. This is about if it's for a first rounder. <laughs> Absolutely, I would. Ooh. Absolutely, I would. But you're not getting that, Salk. You're not you getting sure? that. I don't think you're getting that. You're not getting a first rounder. No. Um, if you're getting a first rounder, anybody on that roster is available, I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, once you get out the first round, like I said yesterday, picks 1 through 15 are the best guys in the country. Then after that, everyone kind of lumps into this this big cluster. You are getting a first round pick. Anybody on that team is on is on the table. So, Again, if that were the case, I think about it, but that's definitely not the case. And I feel like those three together, DK, Jason, and Tyler Lockett, could be really good. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's a piece or two moved around. Now, some people are fine with trading DK because they think he had kind of an attitude last year, maybe you know had an issue with authority, whatever your perception is. Um, KJ Wright says, look, maybe he was a problem child, but he thinks that could change. Yes, he was. And this was my problem with the leadership of this football team. Do I, do I think the leadership would be like that this year? Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. With the McDonald, with the Leslie Frazier, that, that's not flying. When you do have those antics, when you do have those outbursts, it's going to get nipped quickly. And one thing I do know about DK Metcalf is when you do address him, when you do hold him accountable and not let stuff slide, then he will buy into whatever you say needs to be done. I love that. Because here's the thing about DK. His attitude is his edge. Have you, have you ever heard DK mic'd up on the football field? Mm-hmm. That is what makes him special other than his physical attributes. I think the the thing that KJ said that is important is that he will be receptive to criticism and people holding him accountable. Now you just have, got to have guys who are comfortable doing that. Last year, it felt like no one was comfortable doing that. I think DK is a coachable guy. I think that his his passion is confused for being stubborn or whatnot. And there is a part, a part of him that's stubborn. Most greats are stubborn. It's It always baffles me because people expect these football players to go out and not care for their body, throw their face in a tackle, make the play. Do you realize the edge you have to have mentally to play like that every single snap? It might look different. Tyler Lockett's edge looks different than DK Metcalf's, but you cannot take away that edge that makes that player him. Can you shape it and control it? Yeah, but you got to have guys that DK trusts to do that and guys who are comfortable approaching DK when you have to address some of those issues. We've been talking about the Mariners quite a bit today for good reason, but we're going to stick with the Seahawks this time because they have an important decision to make this April. What do you do at pick number 16? NFL.com draft analyst Lance Zerline joins us next.